I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey listeners, it's your host, David. Before you hear our season finale, I just wanted to say thank you for making the launch of Speaking Soundly a resounding success. And we're not done. We're busy preparing for season two, so be sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to get alerts when the new season drops in late January. I can't wait for you to hear my conversations with Grammy Award-winning artists like Rhiannon Giddens, Terrence Blanchard, James Ennis, Anthony Roth Costanzo, and so many others. Season two is going to be awesome. In the meantime, you can keep up with the show by following us on Instagram at SpeakingSNDLY. Happy holidays, and I hope you enjoy this inspiring season finale episode with Elizabeth Rowe. Performing in the spotlight is part of Elizabeth Rowe's high-profile position as principal flutist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Her decision to lead a gender discrimination lawsuit because her salary was less than that of her male colleagues made her job all the more pressure-filled. I would ask myself, can I live with this radical discomfort of going in and asking for what I think I'm worth? And I think many people just avoid it because it is so fraught and it is so uncomfortable. That was the hardest period of my professional life, without question. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera, As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I want to start by asking you about a concert that we actually played together at Tanglewood with your orchestra, the Boston Symphony. It was a program of Debussy and Ravel, two composers who loved the flute. So you had all these solos. They were exposed. You were the only one playing, and the entire orchestra is listening. During these moments when you're holding everybody's attention, what's happening to you? Where where is your head while you're playing? Wow, that is such a great question, and I don't have one single answer for you. My 
experience in performance can range from kind of the ideal that we all think about really being in flow, immersed in the moment, really feeling the music, the emotion. This is the sort of pinnacle of what we all, I think, aspire to as performers. For me on a great day with all the right elements in place, that's what I can experience. There are other times when I am fidgety, I am uncomfortable, my mind is distracted, I am feeling like my sound isn't quite working, I am struggling with my breath control, like there's lots and lots of things that can happen. So my experience as a performer is all, it's all over the map and I just try to do my best to stay in the moment and stay present. And during these solos, are you executing? Are you worried about the notes or are you just as immersed in the performance as the listener is? Well, I think it it's both. So, I mean, my definition of virtuosity really is that ability to create that sense of improvisation or freedom or absolute um, effortless expression. So any perception of effort that the audience perceives from me, I feel like is me not doing my job. Like my job is to is to make you feel like what I do is easy. It's effortless. It's just flowing. And oftentimes there's a tremendous amount of work on the back end that makes that happen. And so there's a lot of preparation, a lot of practice, and a lot of experience. I think of what we do as a, this alchemy of, of art and craft. And the craft part is the work to actually master and, and understand your instrument to the point where you can allow it to speak for you so that the artistic piece, the creative piece can, can be communicated and you do that so well, it seems so effortless when you play. Was it always effortless for you? Ha! Well, I'm happy that it sounds effortless. That's mm -hmm. my job. But, uh, oh, no, it's it's hard. And it was hard for me. Um, I started when I was seven. And I think, especially on the flute, it can be a very difficult instrument to start because actually producing tone isn't that intuitive. So for some instruments, certainly piano percussion, but string instruments to a certain extent also you can see with your own eyes what needs to happen. And when you put a bow on a string, very often a sound comes out. It might not be a great sound, but something comes out. With the flute, you can put the flute together, put it on your face and blow and absolutely nothing comes out. So there can be a, a learning curve early on with the flute that for me, I didn't experience. So I had a very natural start on the instrument and I actually kind of sped forward with a lot of ease for the first couple of years on the flute. And then I started to slow down. So I bumped into, you know, complicated key signatures and lots and lots of sharps and flats and rhythms. And I slowed down a little bit and had to start to learn how to work, not just to rely on my talent, but to actually break things down, work and start to think analytically. And when it did get tough and you were practicing a lot, were you a self-driven practicer or was it the kind of situation where you had to be yelled at by your parents and teachers to get in there and, and practice your scales? When I started early on and things were going easy for me, I think I was self-driven because it was easy. And so when things are going great, it's fun to, you know, go practice and have wonderful things happen. And when you start to then bump up against harder stuff, I think um, that's when sometimes the motivation can can sag a little bit. But I, I never had to really be strongly coerced into, into practicing. I'm also the oldest child, and I was definitely a rule follower. So, you know, when, when my parents said you have to practice for half an hour, I would say, okay. I do remember telling my dad at one point that I wanted to grow up to be the next James Galway, who's this, you know, very famous flute soloist and 
And my, I think I might have been nine or ten when I said that, and and my dad took me very seriously, and he said, absolutely, I think you can do this, but you're going to have to start practicing two hours a day right now. And I think I thought about it for about five seconds, and I said, ah, never mind. <laughs> too much for me. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> so after high school, you went on to study at USC with a flute player named Jim Walker, who was the principal flute of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and a teacher who uniquely left classical music to pursue a career in jazz. I know he was a big influence on you. What was his biggest impact on you musically? He he was the kind of teacher that really believed that it was up to each student to find our voice. He didn't sort of churn out students that all sounded the same. He didn't believe that there was one sound that was the right sound, that there was one approach that was the right approach. You know, the biggest insult that he could give any of us was to call us generic. You play Mozart for him and he would say, it's great. It's a little generic. Uh -huh. And I just felt like a knife in my heart. <laughs> and I remember well into my 20s, his voice in my head saying, you need to have your sound. Like your sound has to be something deeply personal and deeply specific to you. And it has to be compelling and convincing and persuasive. And I would wake up, you know, every day and wonder, do I have my sound and have I found my sound? And then I, then there was this one day at some point in my 20s where I thought, you know what, I do. I've, I have it. I have my sound. Whatever that means, I don't really even know yet. But I want to ask about that, though. Is there a process of finding your sound? Yeah, so I think the idea of how big a player am I? So, you know, there are flute players who play with really big sounds and who, who make a lot of sound. There are flute players who play with a lighter sound. And there are flute players who play with kind of more overt, expressive style. And there are ones who play with more nuance and refinement. And there's a at least a period of time in our development when we are trying things on. It's like, am I a big, giant flute player or am I not? We might receive feedback that it says you need to be more flamboyant or that's too over the top or you sound very vanilla. And, you know, and so as we receive this feedback and as we explore, there's a point at which we can't please everybody and we have to kind of put our stake in the ground and say, this is what I stand for, this is who I am. And I think it takes a long time, or it did for me at least, to just kind of decide what that would be and then to be confident enough to stay there. Um, so I remember times when I received you know, pretty persuasive feedback from an important person in our industry encouraging me to play a certain way. And I thought, well, they must be right. And so I followed that path for a while and then eventually realized that it just didn't suit me. It wasn't me. It felt like I was wearing somebody else's clothes. So I had to kind of return back to my old ways, but I'm sure I carried with it a flavor of that that I had kind of absorbed along the way. So I think it's exploration, it's curiosity, it's being willing to try things, and then and then also to start to notice what resonates with you and what feels like you and what doesn't. And that's why for as many flute players as there are in the world, we all sound different. It's like each individual human voice, you know, it's all different. Can you Can you actually describe what kind of flute player you are? What is your voice? Ah. <laughs> um, gosh, I'd much more comfortable if somebody else would do that for me. I could talk about it from a technical point of view, and I could say that I have a very centered sound, and it's a um, there's a warmth and a richness to my sound that is what I aspire to. I'm probably a more subtle player um, on that spectrum of subtle to effusive and, and, and highly expressive. Um, 
See, this is making me very uncomfortable. Um, I can hear, <laughs> I can hear it point. in my head, but I know. Thank you. <laughs> I think. Are you an opera fan but love a good fantasy league? Does the fight song of your favorite sports team move you almost as much as Nessun Dorma? Well, look no further than Opera Box Score. The OBS team brings you all the news that's fit to chat about the intersection of organized play and orchestrated slay. Now, I have to tell you, they had me on last week to talk about my life as a musician in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and about the podcast. And these guys know everything about opera and sports, and they make it just as compelling as listening to a sports show. So I highly recommend you listen to that episode and check out their podcast, Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera, period. Available wherever you get your pods. So did you find that, generally speaking, your education, your formal education, prepared you for your career in music? Well, (laughs) yes and no. My particular undergrad experience was a little bit unique in that it was in Los Angeles. I was gigging and freelancing while I was in school. So I already had a lot of kind of professional experience at that point. So I I was quite lucky in that way. Um, Did it equip me for the politics within an orchestra, the interpersonal relationships and challenges and the dealing with music directors, navigating all of that? Probably not. Uh, That's a whole different part of the equation, I think. Your audition in Boston was a blind one, meaning that the Audition committee is completely behind a screen and can't see the person playing. I don't think there's another industry in the world that does this, but it's pretty much the norm in orchestras in the United States. Do you think that blind auditions really help level the playing field for gender and racial diversity within the orchestras? Well, so my audition was screened until the final round. It was not fully screened to the end. And I think that's a really important distinction because I believe that most of the value of that screen is lost once we drop, once it, I mean, it's kind of, it's self-explanatory, right? So the screen does do a a great job in leveling the playing field for, for all the people who have historically been kept out of orchestral jobs or whatever the sort of bias or prejudices that exists. So I think that we still have a lot of room to go in the industry because we still are comfortable with this idea of removing the screen at a certain point. Right. And beyond the audition process itself, in terms of leveling the playing field, what other problems do you see that are out there that need to be solved? I will say there's a pretty easy one that appears to still be difficult, which is to get our acts together around pay and pay transparency and running some audits and figuring out why we pay people the way we do and at least addressing and coming to terms with all the disparities that exist currently and trying to bring our industry up to something remotely close to the standards that most of corporate America is adhering to at this point. It's kind of shocking that we are lagging corporate America in these ways. Um, The question of hiring and having an orchestra that better represents the people that are in our communities that's a that's a, a an interesting and hard question and I think we've been avoiding it for well we have been avoiding it for a, a long time I want to jump to 2018 when you led a gender discrimination lawsuit against your employer the Boston Symphony Orchestra essentially you found yourself at the top of your field yet your pay was still substantially less than your male counterparts 
I know you must have felt this coming for a long time. What prompted you to finally take action? So most women get to the point of filing a lawsuit as a last resort. <laughs> so most people will have exhausted every other avenue, including repeated attempts privately with data, with evidence, with the, the law, all of that to achieve some kind of a resolution privately. What really made this possible for me was, you know, when we think about the idea of equal pay, we think, okay, well, there's been an Equal Pay Act for a long time. There's a lot of subtlety in the law, and there are a lot of loopholes in the law. And there are a lot of ways in which what seems on its surface to be obvious about what are your legal rights, what is acceptable, what, what are acceptable criteria that an employer can use to pay people different amounts. When we start to move into the legal framework, it's quite interesting how many ways employers can kind of wiggle out of this. Um, and so what happened in Massachusetts was actually in 2016, a new law was passed that essentially closed a lot of these loopholes and made it really clear to employers how they needed to look at pay, how they needed to measure equivalent positions in an organization and all of that. Um, and so I think one of the things that's sometimes lost in this conversation is that I was able to take this action specifically because I live in Massachusetts and that we are at a more well-supported, more evolved position legally. Women are in this state than in most places in the country. There are only a few other states that have the kind of clarity that we have here about what is and isn't an appropriate reason to pay someone less than someone else. Um, and so that was a big piece of it for me. And, you know, I think speaking from our industry in general, you know, we've gotten ourselves into a pretty muddy mess, really, for never having looked at this head on um, and still, to my knowledge, not particularly thoroughly across our industry. And uh, we've sort of gotten by with everything being behind closed doors. And, um, you know, also, I think an idea that we're all so appreciative to have these jobs, which we genuinely are. And it, it's, it's an interesting situation that I think it's long overdue that we actually confront it and take a look at it. It's also uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for everybody. When you advocated for yourself, that's not something that you learn in school. Did it come innately to you or is it something that you really had to work on? Oh, absolutely not innate to me, even remotely. And I would ask myself, what can I live with? Like, is can I live with myself if I don't advocate for myself? Or can I live with the discomfort, like this radical discomfort of going in and asking for what I think I'm worth? And they were both very uncomfortable for me. And I just came down on the side of I would rather live with the discomfort of advocating for myself, then just avoid the thing altogether. Um, and so it's not as if I would wake up and be like, oh, today's my day to go. Like, woohoo, I get to go ask for what I'm worth. Isn't this a wonderful day? I, <laughs> you know, not at all. And it certainly wasn't ever, it didn't even enter my thinking for a very long time in terms of how do you go through the world believing that you are doing equal work, believing that you are knowing that you are putting out something of really high value, and how do you reconcile that with with pay that is based on other criteria entirely, and how do you not let that get it under your skin? It's very complex. There's a lot of emotional reasons why I think it's hard for people to talk about this and to 
ask for more or to ask for what they think is fair or for, for what they think is right. And I think many people just avoid it because it is so fraught and it is so uncomfortable and we aren't taught or trained how to do it either. So no, it by no means came or comes naturally to me. I couldn't imagine going through this process in the first place, but then also going to work during it and sitting down with the orchestra and making music. What was this time like for you? Well, I mean, I will, sh I will say that that was the hardest period of my professional life as a performer without question. I also really delivered. I mean, I had to, it's like, I, you know, every single performance was really, I felt like it was a referendum on whether I was actually worth what I thought I was worth or what I said I was worth. And so that's a, a degree of pressure that was higher than I've ever, ever experienced. Um, and I will say that, you know, the kind of pressure that something like that, a lawsuit like that puts on the entire organization, on my colleagues, on the whole orchestra, you know, no orchestra wants to be under scrutiny. There's a bright spotlight shown on the organization as a whole that is uncomfortable for everyone. And I was very aware of that as far as my colleagues were concerned. I've been in this orchestra now for, well, since 2004, and I had really built relationships with, with my colleagues. And I think that what comes of building real relationships and having enough kind of cushion in your relationships with people is that it can withstand a stressor like that. So I had and continue to have very strong, very healthy, very mutually respectful relationships with my colleagues. And I think that is a huge component of why I was able to make it through that process in one piece and why the orchestra as a whole wasn't damaged in terms of the camaraderie of the orchestra that we were and have remained really, I think, in a very healthy place as far as our relationships among each other with, within the musicians in the orchestra. And as you were going through this process, you cited the principal oboe, the person that sits right next to you, as one of the men who made substantially more than you, yet he wrote an open letter in support of you and of this cause. I mean, that's a pretty pretty special relationship you have right there. Yeah, you know, it's the, 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 the principal flute, principal oboe relationship, just on a musical level, you know, we talk about flobo, which is that the sound of the flute and the oboe when they blend together and you can't quite tell who's who. And the combination of those two sounds is kind of more beautiful and richer than either instrument alone. It creates this unique thing if it's done well. So there's this very special artistic relationship that can exist, that in an ideal world does exist between those two chairs. And then you think about you're really sitting shoulder to shoulder, literally shoulder to shoulder with someone. And to have that sense of mutual respect and appreciation and, and then the willingness to speak it publicly is pretty tremendous. I watched your TED Talk, and you speak from your personal experience of what you call being a lonely only. What is a lonely only? Only is a word that social scientists use to describe people who usually because of something like, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, you know, physical ability, all of these kinds of things are sort of the sole representative of whatever that group is. And so, you know, this was a classic thing for me is that I'm the only female member of the Boston Symphony chamber players. And so what that means is that for me, I'm very often the only woman on stage, the only woman in the room, the only woman on a tour bus. There can be a loneliness in that. But 
what I was sharing with that TED talk was also the piece where when you are kind of the only representative of, of whatever it is, there's a level of scrutiny, there's a level of pressure, there's a level of feeling as if it is up to you to show up and to represent. And that can feel vulnerable and scary. And for many of us, the response is to put up a lot of armor to be, you know, hyper-prepared, hyper-professional, hyper-private, just be the thing that you're supposed to be. And for me, what ends, ended up really happening was that in my effort to kind of be perfect, in my effort to survive all that scrutiny or the perceived scrutiny, I didn't really let my hair down and let my guard down. I, I, I didn't give myself a lot of room to actually be fully myself. And I also kind of had this idea that nobody could really understand what I was going through because I was the only one. And so thanks to a couple of really important experiences that I had, one of which was my lawsuit when I suddenly was connected with women from all different industries who had been advocating for themselves and who had been through this and who reached out. And I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I have plenty in common with them and they with me. That was very powerful. And then also a really moving experience that I had with younger classical musicians where I was lucky enough to be in, in the room with this group of younger women, some of us who were farther along in our careers, talking about some of the challenges within our industry. And I had this very strong sense that what they needed from me was not at all for me to be perfect, but to actually like talk about what's hard, about the things that I've struggled with, about my failures, about all of that, so that we could see each other in that and, the, and that sort of, sort of break down some of those barriers. So I had these these experiences in this last decade of my life that have really allowed me to start to drop some of that armor, which was both keeping me safe, but also keeping me kind of isolated and, and, and lonelier. So that was what I was hoping to share in that in that TED Talk. And, um, you know, it's, it's a work in progress. It's hard because our job is to present something that is darn near I don't know if I want to use the word perfect, but we are, you know, we're not trying to put something out there that's a hot mess, you know, right. on our instruments. And so to try, sort of hold that with the kind of hot mess that we can be as human beings and make space for both is the, is the interesting part. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Krause Trumpet and go to our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com, for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. See you in January for Season 2 as we hear more inspiring artists speaking soundly. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Planet. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.